0: Now, Connie Goldman looks into a different set of values. There is a current book called Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, An Inquiry into Values. The author is Robert Persig. He studied chemistry, philosophy, journalism, and he spent two years in India learning oriental philosophy. Connie Goldman of public radio station KSJN in St. Paul, Minnesota, interviewed Persig in his St. Paul home. In her own words, she said she learned some of the confusions and agonies of writers' real-life odysseys. Reading is an enemy of writing. You don't realize that until you actually get into something that when you're doing your own thing, when you're concentrating on your your book, uh, if you see a movie or uh, uh, watch a TV show or get involved in any kind of uh, exterior activity, it sort of takes over your own internal TV program and it ties you all up and it stops you. Of course, that's why uh, writers become such recluses frequently, is that uh, it's not that they don't like people, it's just that they have to have that long period of uninterrupted silence in order to collect everything they want to say together. So, actually, that occurred in this book, where so many problems were coming up, uh, people calling up on the telephone in the morning, and I finally bought a pickup camper and took off for the North Shore and they're up by two harbors, uh, uh, located the camper in a spot in April before the place had opened, and I just sat there in this camper uh, day after day, uh, week after week, and wrote the last six chapters of the book. In my opinion, those are, those are six of the best chapters in the book, and they were written because I had a complete consciousness. Uh, uh, they were written out of pure boredom, and that's very important, I think, in writing, is to be really bored. Because uh, if your mind is jammed with any kind of extraneous thoughts, you can't get the full picture of what you want.
1: And yet, I know that some of mm. this book was written while you were working full time during the day writing computer manuals. That's
0: true, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, computer manuals uh, are notoriously boring, and uh, they don't compete as much as TV or a uh, 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 motion picture or radio or any of the things like that with the. With the mainstream of your life and <clears throat> in that arrangement I got up before I did the computer work I get up at 2 o'clock in the morning and go down to a little place on Lake Street and Chicago Avenue and uh, work there at, at
1: 2 in the morning
0: at 2 in the morning yeah and then uh, uh, sit down and sometimes write and sometimes not write, because uh, uh, sometimes just no thoughts would come, but I got into the discipline of just getting there and not particularly having anything to do except write this book, and then with that kind of attitude, getting something out. Once in a while I'd I'd have a good day, once in a while I'd have a horrible day, but every time I'd have some kind of day, and that way the whole first draft of the book got written. Then after that, uh, four hours was over, I'd come home and have breakfast and go off to my job where they began to notice I wasn't as perky as some of the other people because uh, uh, I'd already put in four hours of my day. For me, it was like one o'clock in the afternoon when, when they were starting their eight o'clock in the morning. And then at lunch, I'd always have my head down on the desk, and I'd take that lunch hour for, uh, for a, uh, a, a nap. And uh, Then when that was over, I'd hit the four hours in the afternoon <clears throat> and go to bed at night at six o'clock and just uh, conk out thin. That seems like a horrible schedule, but... For
1: how long were you on that schedule? Two
0: years. And uh, uh, when you look back at it, people say, well, how could you do something like that? But this was really a a compulsive book, Uh, a book that uh, if I didn't do it, I'd feel worse about than if I did do it. So that that two two o'clock thing just became a regular habit, and once I got into it, it worked out all right.
1: Have you ever written anything before that you felt such immediacy about, such compulsion about, to use your word?
0: No, always before I'd been, uh, <clears throat> in, in quotes, a writer. Uh, that is, I was, I was trying to fulfill a role of being a writer. Here I am sitting at a desk with a typewriter or with pencil in hand, and now I'm going to write something so that uh, when I'm done I will have something people will read. And it was always a separation of my real self from the act of writing. There wasn't this one-to-one relationship. That occurred on this book. In this book, it was just—I uh, uh, could almost watch my hand moving on the page, and there was no volition one way or the other. It was just happening. And people have sometimes seen that in the book—that it's that it's very direct. Book. It's very on. This is obviously the person himself talking, and, and not a role player. I think that, to some extent, is what's giving it its success. They—they they, they really feel there's some sincerity here. And to back up a little, I could say when I first started the book. It uh, began as just a little series of essays. I thought it wasn't going to take more than two or three weeks at the most. Then it became two or three months, and before I was done it took four and a half years. But these first essays were just a little kind of uh, uh, a little dissertation on the relationship between technical values and human values, uh, bringing up some uh, information that I picked up in, in my work as a technical writer and, and uh, applying it to the situation. This gradually expanded and expanded and expanded until these essays are kind of the nucleus of an entire novel. So we really have a, a, what we call a, a fiction, a non-fiction work embedded in a fiction work, uh, or or we'll say a, a dissertation embedded in a narrative. We'll put it, we'll be, put it a little better.
1: at one place in the book, you say something, an expression that one has heard many times before, something about it's it's better to travel than to arrive. Did you know where you were going to arrive when you were taking that journey? When your hands were automatically mm-hmm. typing that manuscript? No,
0: you never do. Uh, that phrase, "It's better to travel than arrive," is one that stayed with me since childhood. I've always had a wonderful time on trips, and then just as we get to the destination, I feel so let down, so sad that the trip's going to be over. I feel so stupid because all through the trip, all I could think about was getting to the destination. So what I'm trying to say is is to remind people of, of a principle which is actually quite important in Zen is is that you should pay attention to where you're at right now and not where you're going to be in the future. And uh, I think that's the the root of that expression it's better to travel and arrive. It is better to travel and arrive. I could say also you never you never stop traveling really. You never do arrive. It'd be a better a better way of putting it maybe.
1: What happens to you when you do have your eyes just on the goal, what happens to the? Well, let's see if I can remember mm. one of the analogies you used in the book. Uh, the appreciation of the the minute-to-minute experience.
0: I guess that's fairly strong in the book. That 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 uh, eternal insistence that you watch what's right here and right now and not anything else. Uh, uh, the past and the present are always the past and the future are always contained within the present and. and It's so important to see this, and yet it's so difficult to see this truly, that the Zen people have invented meditation for that purpose. Well, I don't know if meditation is for that purpose, but frequently in meditation you do get pulled right into the present. Your thoughts about the future and your thoughts about the past tend to die down, and and you're just sitting there, you see, and and that gets you into the now, into the here and now. You're fixing
1: is like zens sitting
0: Uh, sitting is the simplest thing is probably the simplest Zen practice there is but of course uh, the same things you do in sitting you do in everything else and in this book I simply decided to talk about motorcycle maintenance as a Zen activity although I've never objectified it Uh, I've tried to do that because I feel it Uh, Frequently people get the idea that Zen is something apart from the everyday world, and it never is. And and I'm trying to bring that point home with the use of motorcycle maintenance. Uh, This is not an exotic activity, at least normally considered. This is not going and sitting on a mountain top or contemplating the petals of a flower. This is just getting in there and getting your hands greasy, and yet that's still Zen. And uh, that's, that's sort of what's behind the title. And uh, so uh, while I do, as a matter of fact, sit regularly and I'm a, medit- uh, a, a practicing Zen Buddhist, uh, the book didn't go into that. Uh, that. Enough has been said about that by people who know it better than I do. But I did want to emphasize that uh, this everyday aspect of Zen and, and see that by concentrating on everyday aspects of life, you can uh, expand your understanding of the world just as well as by the more exotic techniques
1: at, at one point in the book anyway mm. you introduce the idea of being stuck of stuckness oh, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. your word I think yeah, that's right, stuckness. <laughs> do you want to talk about that in relationship to mm. the journey and the self-exploration and how people usually react to being stuck and how oh. you react to it
0: well I'd, I'd said in there that and that is Probably a major contribution to motorcycle (laughs) maintenance of this book. That when you get stuck on fixing motorcycles, that's not a bad moment. Uh, That's actually a pretty good moment. And the times I've been stuck, I've I've been able to catch myself at being stuck, and instead of getting mad, just gone off and had a cup of coffee. And I notice whenever I'm stuck like that, that that uh, if I look at the clouds, the clouds are much more beautiful. And if (laughs) that's a getting a little bit sentimental, but uh, uh, I find that at the very moment of stuckness, if you just stop and look around you, you find the world is very real. If you remember back in your own life periods when, when, when your life was very vivid, it was usually during a hang-up, at least for me. So so I think stuckness is, is uh, very good for people, and that uh, when it comes, you should welcome it, because it won't last long. Uh, you always... Are, I think people in Western culture are trained to believe that if they get stuck, that may be the end of the world, but uh, life doesn't stop, it just goes on, even when you're stuck.
1: That feeling of being stuck in your personal mm-hmm. life, in your job, mm-hmm. in any inconvenience that sets mm-hmm. your schedule off, yeah. is so overpowering to us that mm-hmm. it sets us into fear, mm-hmm. uh, actual panic.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Don't
1: we get in the way of our own growth in the middle mm-hmm. of that stuckness by not taking it and yeah. just
0: living it? The stuckness is kind of what what you call non non doing, and our whole society is set up for doing. We uh, we always ask a person when we want to know about them, Well, what do you do? You know, well, actually, uh, in Zen, the, the correct answer is I don't do anything except sit. You know, and they say I mean, you just sit around, don't do anything. Yes, exactly. You know, and I say well something wrong with that uh, I mean what do you really do you know and the reason this question is asked again and again and again is because people are predisposed to think that unless you are doing something something's wrong and this is a part of the value of the sitting meditation is that you're instructed just to sit there and prevent yourself from doing anything and you and you find that uh, this is not as easy as you thought it would be you think well gee uh, now I don't have to do anything that's easy but you discover after about 10 minutes that this is very, very hard and that there are as many degrees of difficulty in non-doing as there are in doing. And uh, to become skilled at non-doing is quite as difficult as becoming skilled at doing. But then after you acquire both skills, skills at doing and skills at non-doing, you find that if, if you're stuck in traffic, it doesn't uh, create frustration. You just uh, swing into your non-doing life. That is, uh, if your car won't go forward, you just sit in your car and, and uh, you build your life that way. It's almost like photosynthesis and respiration, you know, if a plant just gets nothing but sunlight it's very harmful, it has to have darkness too, and uh, in the sunlight it converts carbon dioxide to oxygen, but in the darkness it takes oxygen and converts it back into carbon dioxide, and I think people are like that. that you have to have some t- periods of doing and some periods of non-doing, and when you get both of them in a, in a mixture back and forth, then you really lead a much fuller life than if you're always committed to doing. So so many people say well I, I don't see the purpose of, of of Zen you see or the purpose of just meditation and uh, the reason they don't see it is because they're committed to doing it. you don't do anything you know but when you don't do anything all that garbage in your head that's accumulated from all his doing during the day starts to come to the surface and float away and your life is purified again or at least your your, your uh, mental life uh, psychic life and uh, this is very valuable and I think it's a Practice, which is coming in very strongly, and not just in Zen, in all the meditative uh, disciplines.
1: What you've just said makes me think about the other concept that runs mm-hmm. through the book, maybe the most primary
0: one: mm-hmm.
1: the idea of quality.
0: Well, that's and how
1: your perception of
0: mm-hmm. quality develops. Yeah, I had a, a friend I sent the book to in California, uh, uh, Mrs. Abigail Kenyon. She came back with the best description of the book I've heard yet and also the shortest she says it's a turtle's back and uh, the name of the turtle's back is quality if you rest four elephants on top of that quality you can put the world on it and everything rises from there and so <clears throat> really the the term quality is the central term of the book and that's what's meant by inquiry into values we're trying to find out what quality is but by the time you if, if you assume there is such a thing as quality Then you find out what you have to do to your philosophy to uh, uh, adopt this thing called quality. You find your whole philosophy is upended. You have to do what's called a Copernican revolution. You have to say that quality is the source of subjects and objects rather than that subjects and objects are the source of quality. And That I hope is is the philosophic um, turtle's back that will gradually gain acceptance.
1: You say it took four and a half years for you to write all of this, and that doesn't mm-hmm. surprise me in the reading of it. Mm. But how many years has it taken you to arrive at
0: what you wanted to write? Oh, yeah, well, that that's the, this is uh, the outgrowth of a whole life experience. I can't think of a time when that book wasn't starting, you know. Even, even at the age of four, when I uh, uh, learned to read and write in England, uh, I remember when I left, my teacher gave me a little book called The London Primer. And uh, For this particular teacher, uh, to learn to read and write was the most important thing in the whole world. When I left, that was just stuck in my mind, and, and there it was, you see, all through these years, and finally emerged in the form of this book. Uh, fortunately, this teacher is still alive, and we've been corresponding every year since I was four, <laughs> and she's got a copy of the book now. and. Uh, uh, when my English publisher wrote me, we We're very pleased to be publishing your book, I said, You don't know how pleased I am. You know, I learned to read and write in your country, and so I'm looking forward to getting back to England eventually and, and uh, seeing this teacher. And, and
1: this book promises not to be reviewed and accepted as, well, just an interesting book. Uh, but uh, some of the advanced comment on it is that it's. Close to a great book. That it's mm-hmm. that it's an important book, a very mm-hmm. important book. How is this settling with you? Is it frightening for you? It is, is it rewarding it, it, for you?
0: I'm just sort of trying to stay as cool as I can at this point and see how things happen. Uh, it's all a new experience for me right now. And the, and uh, uh, when time reporters come into your living room, it just uh, creates a scene that uh, is uh, sharply different from you know any kind of life you've led before. I don't know what's going to happen. Uh, I'm really playing it by ear right now and listening every moment. Uh, my big effort right now is just to keep cool and stay calm and, and see what happens. Uh, they are talking about bestseller in New York. This is the expect not expectation. This is just the thought that's on their mind. And, of course, in the publishing business, uh, they expect to pay for nine losers with that tenth winner, and when they smell a tenth winner, they just go overboard for it. uh, I just had a letter from the vice president in charge of sales at Morrow that's publishing, and he says, we're just leaving no stone unturned to get this book moving. And I talked to uh, B. Dalton, uh, uh, bookseller Alan Kahn, and he said that uh, that's true. The company is selling very hard on this book. and uh, they're really trying to make it a bestseller at this point. Uh, of course, they can only go so far, and that's to get it over a certain threshold, and after that the book's got to do it on their own, uh, its own, but I believe that uh, they have faith that it will make it, and uh, uh, right now it's just like waiting for uh, the returns from an election. I don't know <laughs> what's going to happen, maybe a landslide, Maybe, maybe not much, but we'll see.
1: Bob, how do you plan to protect yourself? You're a private person, and your most creative Mm -hmm. thinking and and work is done Mm -hmm. in solitude.
0: That's right, yeah. Well, this is part of the problem. I think I have an obligation to respond to people, and uh, I'll do that until I feel that the obligation to get on with my next book is more important than that obligation. Then I have this pickup camper, and I can just jump in it and take off, and nobody's going to know where I am, and i have all the solitude I want. So I think for a while I'll be uh, answering all the letters I get, all the mail, and and, uh, until I feel that this is really wasting my life, and then get on with the second book.
1: Bob, we talked earlier about the younger you, the one that all your life has been writing this book. Mm -hmm. Um, I notice here that in some of the advanced copies were sent to prominent Mm -hmm. people, and Eric Hoffer Mm -hmm. has responded that uh, he feels... That you're one of the, that you're a born writer, and this is one of the truly good books of our time. But he says that he thinks it says here. uh, Can I just quote from it? Sure, go ahead. It is a miracle that he came through the 1960s. The Persigs Mm -hmm. I have known at the Berkeley campus during the free speech movement, and later Mm -hmm. have disappeared without a trace. It's perhaps Mm -hmm. Persig's precious patch of squareness that saved him. (laughs) It shines like
0: gold in the gravel of a river. (laughs) Do
1: you want to comment on his comment about you?
0: Well, of course, the book sort of goes after squareness, and he's uh, uh, saying that that actually it's the squareness and the part of the person who's going after the squareness that saves him. I believe Hoffer got into a lot of uh, conflict uh, between uh, hip and square and, and decided to defend the squares. Uh, He's he's a wonderfully honest person, and uh, uh, I think he had a a right cause on his hands. Actually, I like to think that I'm both hip and square at the same time, that these two terms aren't uh, irreconcilable, that uh, in fact the book is a kind of a reconciliation of those two worlds of thought, so I think it's possible to, to be a square motorcycle mechanic at the same time a a groovy rider, and that this isn't uh, a conflict for anybody. Or or it's possible to be both a square and a groovy motorcycle mechanic, we'll put it that way. And there's a lot of uh, people who don't think there is such a thing as groovy motorcycle maintenance uh, don't understand motorcycle maintenance really at all, because it's there to be found. And when you see a really good one, one who's a real artist at it, that you know right away that there's such a thing as an art of motorcycle maintenance. A lot of people have doubted whether that's a worthy subject of art, but I think that's just snobbishness. Art is is anything you can do well, anything you can do with quality, anything where there are options for doing it well or poorly. And uh, there are very few things in this world that don't have options for doing it well or poorly. So you can make an art out of anything, and I think that making of an art out of your technical technological life is the way to solve the problem of technology that the uh, book. Up. I think there's
1: no question that there is less contrivance in this book than anything that I can ever remember reading okay. it's
0: well.
1: it's just blatant honest sincerity I can almost yeah. feel the two in the morning sessions now <laughs> that I learn about them
0: <laughs> I could tell you, uh, there's a thing something I can tell you uh, when I was a student at uh, in the graduate school of the university here uh, I uh, spent almost nine months studying under Alan Tate, uh, who was a, a poet and uh, teaching a uh, graduate seminar in composition. And I remember I took in one story, I'd come back from India at that time, and I uh, uh, brought in one story entitled, Ramji and the Crow, which is about a servant that we'd had and a crow that he used to talk to, and I thought this was a very beautiful story, I really impressed with it myself. And I showed it to him, and he read through the whole thing, and he, and he says, well, what do you want to write all this exotic stuff for? He says, write about what you know. And he says, if you write about what you know, and you do it, you know, carefully and sincerely and make sure it's, it's really what you know, he says, that'll be plenty exotic to everybody else. And, and in this book, I've really tried to do that, and I've tried to justify what I've done to myself by saying, well, it may be right, it may be wrong, but it sure is what I know. You see and that, that I suppose is responsible for that feeling of, of directness that you get uh, it was just trying to get a one-to-one relationship between myself and, and what's on paper
1: did you ever have any fantasies at four in the morning while you were writing the thing about
0: how the world would receive it well I had them but uh, they wore off you know? <laughs> 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 you, after about three or four months uh, there's nothing keeping you going except this this compulsion Actually, the best days in writing, for some reason I woke up last night thinking about this, the best days in writing there on Lake Street were the days when I was neither enthusiastic nor depressed. Uh, Some days I'd say, oh, this is the world's greatest writing, and then I'd look at it the next day and it was just awful. And sometimes I'd cut it so badly that uh, I'd really ruin something that really wasn't as bad as I thought it was. So in the days when I was elated, I would I would put in stuff, but my critical faculty had, had uh, weakened so that I was getting in a lot of slush that really wasn't valuable. And on days when I was depressed, my critical faculty was working way too strongly and I'd throw away perfectly good things. So, so the very best day is the day when you don't really care whether it's good or whether it's bad, when you're just sitting there writing. When you trust yourself. Yeah, or, or, or when you just don't even, don't, are, are not even conscious of yourself at all. It's just a, uh, when you get that total lack of self-consciousness, then it happens. Then it starts coming out on paper. But sometimes it takes months before you can get to that point, you see, and you have to throw away those months of work because you realize then, at one point, all of a sudden you're hitting, you know, it's just coming out strong. And I've heard that said by many, many writers, the way to learn to write is just to write. And what they mean is that if you keep up the discipline sooner or later, it's going to just uh, reach a point where nothing else is motivating you except the the words themselves.
1: But, Bob, that is exactly what the book is about. When you talk about doing an activity, planning it, and feeling separate from it, and evaluating it as you go along, Mm -hmm. you're really separate from what you're doing.
0: That's right. Then you
1: talk about. Fixing the motorcycle and mm-hmm. the only thing that exists is what you are doing right then the mm-hmm. involvement in it mm-hmm. So you're really talking about your writing. You're exactly. fixing your motorcycle Your mode of most successful living is all being the same mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it all comes out to be the same thing actually the sitting is the same thing You start yes. out feeling oh Lord. Uh, I hate this and then later on you feel, oh boy This is wonderful and, and you're wrong both times it, it, uh, <laughs> It's just sitting And uh, the book was just riding, and the motorcycle was just fixing, and and when you get down to that nothing special thing, there's a very famous late Roshi from California, uh, Shinri Suzuki, who used to say, uh, used to talk about just sitting and nothing special, and uh, to some extent in this book I've tried to talk about just fixing and nothing special, but of course when you take that attitude, everything special comes in, you know. uh, You try for nothing special, but in the process of getting there, everything comes in, including the kitchen sink. uh, uh, But the goal is always just, just to live your life without too much fuss about it. And that was Robert Persig, author of Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, an inquiry into values. Connie Goldman talked with Persig.